men as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God, we thank you for your word. And we ask that today our hearts would be soft soil for your word to be planted like seed and to grow and bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. What defines Christians? What defines Christians? When I was uh, grown up in church, I, I always felt like this was a really tricky question. And when I would share my faith and share with my friends that I was a Christian, I would always be at pains to say, I'm more spiritual than religious. Have you ever tried having that kind of conversation with someone? I remember when Facebook first came out, I almost felt hesitant to put Christian. I wanted to put follower of Jesus or something that sounded uh, a little bit more practicable or something that people would understand a bit more. Because I think sometimes... Maybe when we hear the word Christian or when society uses the word Christian, we might think of it as meaning those people who are just all about moral conservatism, who want to tell people how they should and shouldn't live. I've met a lot of people who, for them, the word Christian is the word hypocrite in another form. I've met some people who the word Christian is just all about service and compassion, as if uh, you follow this religion of this crucified Messiah so that you can open doors for ladies and be really good at making cups of tea. And I kind of wanted to wrestle with this. And then one day I was speaking with someone and uh, I think I was having my hair cut at the time and I said, I'm a Christian. And they said, oh, you're religious. And I said, oh, no, no, I, I follow Jesus. I'm, I'm spiritual to try and discern myself in some way from these labels. And he said, oh, you're not religious. Do you read the Bible? I was like, yeah. He said, how often? I said, every day when I can. Do you pray? Oh yeah, I love to pray. And he was like, you sound pretty religious to me. And I realized maybe I was splitting hairs. Maybe I was trying to dissociate myself from other forms of church that maybe I was uncomfortable with. Here's another way of framing the question. What do people expect that Christians do? My whole... uh, My whole life with my wife, we've not had loads of money and we have driven bad car after bad car. If it is a banger and is at least 15 years old, we have, we feel like we have driven it at some point and we've had constant breakdowns and got to the point where I think a lot of my friends don't like getting lifts with us on long journeys because they know at some point we're going to break down and be sat on the hard shoulder for a good while. Um... Until recently, it kind of reached its climax when we were given a car on the Saturday, a 15-year-old 
uh, Berlingo that had driven 200,000 miles. And two days later, the clutch went and we had to scrap it. And uh, some of our family took pity on on us and said, you need to stop with this madness. Go and get yourself a better car. We'll give you a bit of money to get something that's slightly newer and is going to last you for a few years which you're really blessed by and I turned up at this car showroom having never actually bought a car in that way having always kind of gotten given or begged and borrowed and stole these kind of old bangers and I meet this car salesman and he's like what do you do then I say oh I'm I'm a pastor of a church he's like what do they do I said I don't know I'm trying to work out he said that sounds really cool We had this whole conversation driving around, uh, doing this test drive. I'm sure he made me test drive more cars, and we went longer distances just because he was hungry to hear about faith and Christianity. It was a beautiful thing, beautiful thing. As soon as we sat in the first car, I was praying, God, what is it you want me to share with this person? And he said, so give me an example of something you do in your job. I thought, Lord, is that you? That's That's like the hearts are open. He wants to hear something about what I do, and... What immediately came to mind was actually a really random thing of uh, a lady who is in our church who struggles with alcoholism, who we've been given work, who've been spending time mentoring, trying to help her to overcome her addiction. And as she's uh, overcome her addictions more and more and more, and as she's discovered Jesus and fallen in love with Jesus and been baptized, her life has been radically transformed. So I was like, I told this guy this story, and I was like, you know, you wouldn't believe how we met this lady. We got given like a prophecy, like God said something to us and we went and then she was there and it was incredible. And this guy just started welling up. He said, my dad's an alcoholic. And the way that you described all of that woman's family giving up on her, that's what my family have done to my dad. But I really believe in those kind of experiences where you hear something or see something or something happens there was an openness to his heart today's passage is all about um, being clothed with Christ it's about us living in such a way that people see the attributes of God in our character and actions that's a really rich idea and that's something that Particularly in this time, with all the fallings out and tragedies and politics that's happening, I think that's something that's needed more than ever. But it starts off like this. What is our identity as Christians? What defines Christians? What makes a Christian? Paul says, we are chosen, holy, and beloved. We are chosen, we are holy, and we are beloved. That first of all, we are defined by the grace of God. Actually, I shouldn't be ashamed of that label Christian because to say that is to say I am fully dependent and identified by the mercy and the goodness of God more than anything that I do. That's a beautiful, beautiful point to start with. We are not defined by our works, anything that we strive to do. We are not defined by our wrongs and the mistakes that we've made. And we're not defined by the world and how the world would say Christians are. But then we get into this bit where it says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and this radical forgiveness that Paul talks about. It's a really interesting idea, isn't it, to be clothed with Christ. We find that phrase, clothed with Christ, in Romans 13 and Galatians 3. It makes me think 
first of all, at the Garden of Eden. How mankind was made free, free from sin, free from brokenness, made in the perfect image of a perfect, holy, creative God, but also with the freedom to rebel and reject. And part of that rebellion and turning away from God brought with it shame, brought with it mistakes. And we find this curious passage where they where Adam and Eve feel the need to cover themselves up in their nakedness because of their shame. It makes me think of Leviticus 8. It makes me think about Moses taking the sons of Aaron and saying, hang on, this is how God is going to relate to humanity. I'm going to take these certain people, I'm going to wash them, I'm going to put on robes and tunics, I'm going to anoint them with oil, I'm going to slaughter a bull and rub a load of blood on their big toe and their thumb, which I I still don't understand if I'm honest makes me think of the conversations that Jesus had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious rulers of his day, talking about their phylacteries, talking about the way that they fasted in such an open way, covering themselves in certain things, that actually we put on things to try and help us deal with our shame, with our sickness, with our stains, with our separation from God and each other, from sickness, from Satan, and, and things that would come between us and God. And yet, in Jesus, we are pure, free, clothed with the attributes of God. That actually we are clothed with Christ, that God looks at us, and we are anointed and washed and set free with his blood. And that's what this passage is all about. Because we have been set free, and we have nothing to prove. We don't have to wear certain robes to have access to God. We don't have to dress a certain way to deal with our brokenness and the way that the image of God is fractured within us. Because of that, we are free to bear fruit. We are free not to try and achieve and strive for status with God, but to display something of his image and his character to the world around us. This poverty that me and my wife had lasted throughout most of our uh, early years of marriage. And when we were first married, the only house we could uh, afford to live in was basically a missionary's house who was going to give it to us for next to nothing. Um, So when it came to our wedding day, we didn't need gifts of of household items. We We were pretty honest. To be honest, guys, we're all about the money. If you come to our wedding, please give us some money so we can eat and live. And um, we went away on this really cheap honeymoon in the middle of Wales to another free house that someone had gave us. Came home, and the day after we came home, um, we went out for a meal, and someone broke into my wife's, mine and my wife's bedroom where we were staying and stole all of our money and the few gifts we'd been given. Um, one of those gifts was actually a laptop that someone I'd been studying with at Bible College had given me to help me do my master's as like a, as a extravagant gift. It, was, it wasn't just that this was an expensive laptop, it was that someone had given it to me and invested in me. And I felt hurt, felt a little like, hang on, this is my space that's supposed to have been shut off. About a year later, I got a phone call from the police. Luckily, uh, the house where it was had insurance that covered the house, and we managed to get back, you know, fully everything that had been stolen in, in the course of time, which was really great. Um, but I got a phone call from the police, and they said, um, are, you, are you Mr. Kane? I said, that's what some people call me, yes. They said, um, 
we've got the people who stole from you a year ago. It turns out it was a man and a woman. And the man uh, was violent, abusive, addicted to drugs, really struggling with mental health issues. And the woman was his pregnant girlfriend. He was dragging around trying to um, also find money to score drugs for herself. And uh, we've put the guy in prison, and since it's come out that this woman has been really badly uh, abused and mistreated by this guy, and uh, as part of uh, a program that we're running as the police, we want you to meet with her and for her to see the impact of what stealing from you, um, what stealing from you, the impact that that had. And I thought... Oh, gosh. How on earth can I be mad at that woman? I said to the policeman, I said, on the phone, I think she, she probably needed the money more than I did from the sounds of it. And the policeman said, um, that's not kind of the point. We would rather you didn't say that. We want her to get the impact of the mistake that she made and the thing that she did and how much it upset you. And I was like, how on earth could I have anything other than forgiveness for that girl? How on earth could I try and pursue justice or feel angry or wronged or hurt by someone who's so broken and has gone through so much? The police said, I'm reading your statement and you're saying that you had this laptop and it was full of sentimental value and it got taken from you. And I said, yeah, but you've just told me this woman was in the worst situation that I can possibly think of. Turned out the policeman cancelled the meeting that I had and didn't think that this would be a very productive way of making her feel guilty for her crimes so that she wouldn't commit another. I heard one of my friends uh, relay an old proverb recently. He said, if you're going to carry a grudge, dig two graves. And there's that sense that actually part of us being chosen, holy, beloved children of God is living in such a way that mirrors that merciful, gracious heart of God. And to have that forgiveness that might shock police officers. I'm sure you've got your own stories of people you've forgiven. I'm sure, if you're anything like me and you know a few people, you've also been hurt and, and broken and mistreated and people have done terrible things that have hurt and upset you. And actually to try and find forgiveness in that is so hard. And yet, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive, we read in verse 13. And it reaches its climax in verse 14. Above all these characteristics, above all these good parts of God's heart that you display, put on love. Above all, put on love. To display love to the world. You can debate the theology, but I love that Charles Wesley hymn uh, with the line, Jesus emptied himself of all but love. There's a beautiful poetry to that, that actually that's what we're called to do. We're called to empty ourselves of our pain and our brokenness and our mistakes till all that is left is the love of God to be incarnate, to be made flesh, to be made tangible to people, that people meet you and experience and express the love of God. Paul goes on to write in verse 15 that we um, allow the peace of Christ to rule in this body together. That for us as believers, we don't 
rule each other in church by politics and organizing ourselves, but we rule ourselves by peace, by being grateful for the grace at work in our lives and in the lives of others around us. And we do this as a church. Paul then starts to talk about singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs about allowing God's word to dwell amongst us and to help us grow and challenge each other. That as a church, we create the space to deepen the image of God in each other. That we would better display the characteristics of God to the world. And finally, Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In word and deed. I think Christians have got caught up in... um, the argument that was made in the Reformation 500 years ago, is it, are we saved by faith or by works? And actually, um, obviously that, that debate is true, that theology is rich, that we are saved entirely as an act of God and his mercy, not through any religious works of the law that we could do. But I know a lot of people that struggle with this and go, hang on, well, how does this work? How does this look when there's all these kind of moral things that we're told to do in the Bible? If you try and live a moral life, are you not trying to earn salvation? And actually, I think that's the wrong way around of looking at it. I think works of the law are acts of man trying to change the heart of God. Whereas I think the fruit of faith, to be clothed with Christ, is to live out the character of God in such a way that changes the hearts of man, in such a way that changes the world around us, that brings something of the kingdom, that restores something of the image of God in his creation. I love that uh, little line, in word and deed. Some people act as if uh, Christianity has to just be turning up at crises and handing out cups of tea and being nice and running food banks. And some people act as if Christianity just has to be standing up on a soapbox and preaching at people. And the truth is, it's both. The truth is, discipleship is a bit of both. It's loving and proclaiming the gospel. The truth is, it's not um, social action that our good works are. It's social redemption. Just as we believe in personal redemption of the sinner, we believe in the redemption of society. We believe that the goodness of God doesn't just overcome our personal sins. We believe that the goodness and the faithfulness of Jesus and the salvation that he brings conquers sickness and death, that it destroys the devil and all of his works, that it is going to bring hope and life to society, that it ends the separation and enmity even amongst us. Look around us. What a group of people for God to have brought together. Would all of us be in a room anywhere else other than in a church service? And that's a sign of the fact that even though humanity has broken and fractured when it comes to the image of God that God put within us, that actually we can be united. We together can come together and and express the relationship and the freedom and the love of God. So I want to encourage you. Uh, today, in the midst of the deep depths of hurt and pain that are going on around us, you can feel powerless. You can feel hopeless. You can be like me, where you're reading reports of politics and what's happening in Parliament, and your blood gets slightly warmer than usual, and you get frustrated by the injustice and the pain of what's gone on, and you don't know what to do. 
Yesterday there was that day of rage, wasn't there, which kind of petered out a little bit. But actually, we are not inactive passengers in all of this. We are a people of hope. We are a people who live lives in such a way that the fruit of God and his character is displayed to the world. And actually, each act of forgiveness, each act of bearing one another's burdens, each act of compassionate hearts, of kindness, humility, patience, each act of love that you give is about the redemption of society, the redemption of the world that God is doing. And that's a really hopeful place to be in, isn't it? That as Christians, we're not just nice door openers. And we're not just people who like to tell people what they should do between the bedsheets. We are people that live in such a way we speak of the richness and the goodness of Father God's mercy and compassion and his desire to fix the brokenness in our world. And we can commit to to do that and to to live out that together. Should we worship God together to conclude? Why don't we stand?